Welcome to On Your Terms with Aaron King, a show about living a life you truly love. Here's Aaron. Hey, friends, and welcome to On Your Terms. I'm Aaron King, and today our guest is someone very special. Laura Gassner Odding served as a presidential appointee in Bill Clinton's White House. She helped shape AmeriCorps, left a leadership role at a respected nonprofit search firm. She founded and ran the Nonprofit Professionals Advisory Group, and she is the best-selling author of Limitless, How to Ignore Everybody, Carve Your Own Path, and Live Your Best Life. Also a dear friend and a total badass, one of my favorites, LGO. LGO, welcome to the show. Hey, Erin. I'm so excited to be here. Ah, me too. And you are just fresh off giving your brand new TEDx talk. Congratulations, friend. That is a freaking huge accomplishment. Thank you so much. Thank you. It was one of those things where I was like, I can't believe I'm doing this again. It was so terrifying the first time. I'm doing it again. Have I learned nothing? But it turns out that in the, what, six years since the first time I gave a TEDx and this time, I learned a ton about how to show up on stage as me and not showing up on stage as like, here's how a TED talker talks. And a lot of that, Erin, is thanks to you. Oh, my God. Well, vice versa. I mean, we both have helped each other so much with presentation and delivery and content. Um, It does remind me of that uh, parody. I think it was SNL or something where they're making fun of TEDx speakers and TED speakers, how they're all like, imagine a world. And it's always like the exact same formula. So I know you blew it up and freaking crushed it. So um, congrats. And the topic, by the way, is interesting. So this podcast is pretty new. We're calling it On Your Terms. And it's really, you were one of my first people that came to mind as a great guest for this podcast because that is your whole jam, is this whole idea of living life in consonance where with when who you are matches what you do, which is this whole podcast, right? About how do we redefine success, live life personally and professionally by our rules on our terms. And so I think what's interesting is this this new topic that you have coming out, Wonder Hell. I was kind of skimming through the website. It looks really interesting. And obviously, knowing you, it's intentionally a little controversial with the topic. Um, but tell me more about this idea of um, this burden of potential. Because I think right now, that really resonated for me. Like I stopped the scroll when I saw it said burden of potential. I think right now for a lot of us, being on the other side of the last... 2.5 million years, it feels like. Uh, yes. We're all in this like mega reinvention. I, mean, I have friends that are just like fully moving somewhere new. They're, they're taking the trip. They're starting the venture. They're quitting the job. Um, we're just all in such a season of like, who in the hell do we actually want to be on the other side of this thing? And it's almost like when you go to Cheesecake Factory or one of those like great greasy spoons where there's so many options that you just feel... I do anyway, like analysis paralysis. Yeah. Yeah. And so I love that phrase, the burden of potential, because I feel right now, having just turned 40, I feel this burden of path potential. Like there's so many options, you know, there's so much possibility. So tell us more about how do we, what does it mean, first of all? And like, what what are you saying we might think about to start to navigate a little more and make it and flip it from overwhelming to really exciting? 
Yeah. So the the idea for the book Wonder Hell actually came about after my book Limitless was published. And, you know, you, you, you knew me back then and I, I did not have much of a platform. I wasn't very well known. I thought three people would buy Limitless and they'd include my mother, my father and my sister. Maybe if she wanted to buy it, I don't know. <laughs> maybe she'd get it used from my mother. I love your sister. Uh, <laughs> of course, you buy at least 10 copies. <laughs> she would. I know. I know. I know. That we, we, I, I, for people who don't know, we, we all have had uh, brunch in uh, California and it was amazing. And my sister was like, it's so cool. Everyone calls you LGO. And I'm like, I know this is who I am in my professional <laughs> world. We'll get back to that in a second. Cause there are people in our personal <laughs> lives who don't know who you really are, right? The people who have known you forever in your life, they don't know who you are today. So yeah. we'll talk about that as one of the things that are holding us back in a minute. But so my book comes out and it is ridiculously unexpectedly uh, successful. Washington it was Post. huge. Yeah, huge. I, Washington I, felt, Post like, I felt like you were everywhere. I mean, we started at the same time with our speaking career about the same time, like five years ago. And I remember one day it was like, I saw it on TV. I saw it in news. It, it, it was just overnight. It felt like, of course, behind the scenes, it wasn't overnight, but it, yeah. it was really, I mean, it really did. It took, me, uh, it took me 25 years to be an overnight success, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. Good Morning yeah. America, Today Show, Washington yeah. Post, the whole nine yards. And, and I was on my way back from an event where I had literally been the opening act for Malala, right? Malala, like Malala, Malala. And I was so jazzed up. And I found out that week that the book debuted on the Washington Post bestseller list right behind Michelle Obama. And I was like, I'm the you know coolest person mm -hmm. ever. And I'm on this red eye and I'm sandwiched, you know, between these like, two huge dudes and they're both snoring and sweating and it's four in the morning and I can't fall asleep. And so I opened my laptop and I write this long screed on Facebook about like, I don't even know where I am anymore, but I'm 1200 miles from the start and 1200 miles from the finish. And all I know is that between the blur that was the past and the blur that will be the future is the space I'm in right now. And the space I'm in right now is wonder hell. Like it's amazing. Mm. It's exciting. It's crazy. It's so humbling that anybody wants to spend even five minutes thinking about this thing that I created. Yeah. And also I've never been so exhausted in my entire life. I'm full of stress yeah. and doubt and uncertainty and anxiety and, and identity shaking, you know, questions. It's, it's wonderful, but it's also kind of hell. It's kind of wonder hell. And I realized yeah. that it was wonder hell because wonder hell is the space in your psyche where the burden of your potential walks in and goes, hey, Aaron, what you got for me? Mm. You have now seen that this thing, this idea that you have can be bigger, that you mm. can be more, that there is even a different path out there than you ever expected. So what are you going to do with it? Mm. And suddenly you go, oh, no. <laughs> Well, and it's interesting to me that you had that moment of epiphany. I mean, you've already had such an incredible career. I mean, I've always been your girl fan since the day I met you <laughs> from working in the White House and, and from all of your success working in recruiting and leadership. You've done these nonprofits. You founded like a Montessori school or something by your house. I mean, you've done, you're, you're, you're not like, you've run like a hundred marathons. I mean, I get around. <laughs> it's not like you were just sitting around and then all of a sudden you're like, oh wait, I have some potential. Like it's always been there. So I wonder it's interesting that you got to a certain echelon and that's when it triggered that feeling for you so it i had felt this feeling before of like okay. oh there's more out there i want to get more out there i'm gonna hunker down i'm gonna muscle through i'm gonna swallow yeah. all the slings and arrows and stress and i'm just gonna push them aside and i'm gonna keep going this was the first time that it it, it came together for me in a way where i realized that 
success isn't a final destination. Like we think of success as when I achieve it, everything will get easier. When I achieve it, I'll be done. But it turns out like any, any success you've had, whether it's the first sale you ever make or selling a million dollar business, it is you, you have this moment where you're like, it's going to get easier when, and it doesn't because it turns out that success is not a final destination at all. It's a portal. And through that portal, you get to see your potential. So, you know, the work you do opens more doors than you ever thought possible, but then the work also opens even more opportunities that you never Mm -hmm. thought possible. And that's the moment Mm -hmm. where you have to say, am I going to go for it? Or am I going to sit here? And if I sit here, will I regret it? And so what I realized in that moment was that success is, is not a final destination, right? You have to come Mm -hmm. to terms with your ambition. You have to be like, you know what? I actually do want more. It's okay that I was on good morning, America. I want to be on Oprah. Someone's got to sit under the oak tree with her. Why not me? (laughs) By the way, Oprah, if you're listening, call me because we got to make that date. So that's number one. Number two is that all of these mixed emotions that surround this realization, right? There's the you before you see the potential. And then there's the you Mm -hmm. after. And suddenly you're like, oh no, now what? I want it. I love it. I'm excited. I'm stressed. I'm not sure. All of these mixed emotions, it turns out that they're not limitations, but they're invitations. The world tells you that feeling that you have, the discomfort, that's a limitation. You should slow down. But the truth is, it's actually your invitation to speed up. Like that shows you that you're on the right path and it shows you what you're made of. And then the last piece is that wonder hell is actually... Um, not a one-time stop, but wonder how loves itself a repeat visitor. So every Mm -hmm. single time you achieve something, it opens the portal for even more. And so when I found myself in this moment of wonder how I went about doing research, right? I read all the books telling me to crush it and to lean in into 10 X and all the ones telling me to stop apologizing and wash my face and all that. And what I, what I realized was that there are people who have been to wonder how glass ceiling shatterers, Olympic medalists, startup Mm -hmm. unicorns, everyday people like you and like me. And what they told me was that at every moment of doing something they never thought possible, they also had all of this crushing imposter syndrome and doubt and vulnerability and uncertainty and and, and doubt and, and exhaustion and burnout. And each one of them also said that by thinking that wonder hell is not a possibility, but a definite And then knowing that our lives are the series of successes punctuated by lessons and losses and life, they could actually look forward to it and plan for it and learn from it Mm. and grow in it. So they really renegotiated their relationship with all of these terrible emotions, understanding that it's not, I just have to get through this one stomach turning moment, but that they're going to visit the place over and over and over again. So they have to learn to live in that moment and be uncomfortable just a little bit longer. Okay, pause. That is, there's so much there. Okay, so I love these three. You know, I love a good three. I love a good three yeah, pillars, yeah, yeah, pub yeah. method. I love a good one, two, three. I want to back up to um, this idea of it not being a destination because we've all seen that coffee cup. We've all heard that. But I feel like it's super weird when you actually embrace that as a real truth. Tell me this. Have you had this experience where you achieve one of the success milestones? And I'm not talking about the hedonic treadmill where you reset the pin. I'm talking about like you actually had a a final end point. Like you had a a set point at the end that was like when I published, for example, my big girl book with my top five New York publisher where it's not self-published, then I'm going to feel very successful. Have you had one of those moments 
where you were so deeply disappointed because you didn't feel the payoff and you're sitting here like, okay, so I just wasted all that time, all that energy, not wasted. I just spent all that time, money, energy, and I've been waiting for like this monster moment of ta-da and then it doesn't arrive and it makes you question what you're even chasing down. Have you had that happen? Yeah, I actually had that happen when I sold my last company. I thought that I was going to sell the company and it was going to be this great thing. And I was going to take this big check, like a publisher clearinghouse check to the bank. Yeah. Right? And I was going to walk in and I was going to be celebrated by, the, by, by my staff who were buying the company from me. And I was going to just feel done. I feel finished. I was like, I feel accomplished. And, and then I, I didn't, the sale of the company took a lot longer than we expected. The payment came by a wire. So I didn't even have a physical check at all. Like I didn't even like have the thing. Um, the team that I was selling the company to was really excited, um, that we were getting the sale finished, but they were terrified because it was my last day. And I was like, woohoo, I'm done. And they were like, it's our first day. And now we're really scared, right? Like what's going to happen. And I, I, and it's just like, at the end of the day, I was like, okay, I guess I'm done. And I like disconnected my email and I closed my laptop and I just sort of sat at my desk, like, okay. Like well, anticlimactic. Now what? So isn't that interesting? So you, you achieve this monster goal, which I mean, a lot of us as entrepreneurs, especially as women, I mean, what is it like less than 2% of female entrepreneurs generate revenue of over a million dollars, Yes. even fewer sell, sell their own company. Um, you and I are in that, that, you know, minority, but it's, it's interesting how it didn't for me, like, so, okay. When I had my big book that my big girl book, which you were a huge part of, um, you're kind of a big deal. I remember when I published it, I literally was so to your point. Yeah, you have it. You're so good. But to your point, I remember like like with the media and the PR and you're worried about the pre-sales and you're worried about the stupid effing lists and you're worried about name in thing here. People think publishing a book is so glamorous. It is the slog of all slogs. <laughs> I remember it was like everyone was like, congrats, and you're eating the cupcake and you have the Instagram moment. But I never, to this day, I literally have never had the feeling that I wanted to cultivate with that book. Now, when I did sell my company this past January, I did have that feeling, but it was also delayed because it took so long, like you said, that yeah. you were so excited that by the time the damn thing actually happened, you were like, it was like, pew, like this little puff of like, it's yes. done. I, and you know what's also interesting is that, so I sold the company, the last day was on a Friday. There was like no big email from like my business partner. It was like nothing. It was just like, okay, I guess I'm just done now. I guess I'll just close the laptop. And my husband came home from work and we were planning on driving to Montreal. It's a five hour drive from Boston. We were spending the weekend there. Great, wonderful. We're in the car, five hours. He doesn't mention it, not a word. Nothing. We're just like talking about our days and we need nothing, not a word. And I'm like getting pissier and pissier and pissier. And we like finally get to Montreal and we park in front of the hotel and he looks at me, he goes, what's wrong? He's like, are you going to be like this all weekend? And I was like, dude, you didn't even say congratulations. And he's like, I congratulated you when you signed the papers like a year ago. Isn't that interesting? So like it was so, already done. Yeah, it, was, yeah. it was done. Yeah, it's so interesting. So when we think about these moments, right, whether it is you selling your company, you know, the year later, uh, me with my book being anticlimactic and, and, you know, my acquisition, we all have these different stories. But let's say someone is either in corporate America and they have the huge team and maybe they have, you know, not ideal childcare, whatever their version of wonder, hell or wonderful is. What do you think it is that would allow us to experience more vibrantly the emotion that we're seeking yes because like i don't know about you but 
I'm like people say like what's your why or whatever like I am chasing satisfaction and joy on a deep cellular level and I I personally only feel that joy at the end of a talk when I'm on stage, if it went well, right? But after a talk on stage, when everyone is giving their love back to you, that is the only moment in my career where I feel this deep sense of impact and purpose and joy. And I wanna figure out how to, how to tap into it in more touch points. So how do you think we can get better at not just chasing success, but experiencing that very deep emotional version of it? Yeah, well, I think it depends on how you define success, right? So that goes back to my book, Limitless, where I had spent 20 years doing that executive search work, doing that recruiting work. And, um, you know, the way I like to say it is that, you know, I called, I was, I was hired by my clients to find and recruit away on their behalf, some of the most successful people in the world. And that sounds like kind of a hard job. Except, despite you know, the reason I was calling them was because of all the success. But despite all this success, the, they weren't very happy, which is the reason they were calling me back. And mm. I was constantly uh, fascinated by this question of why are these successful people still looking for the next job? Like they should be super happy. They're, you know, very well ensconced where they are. They're super successful. They're hitting all their metrics. Their boards love them. Their teams love them. They're, you know, getting all the press. Like, why are they, why are they calling me back? They shouldn't be calling yeah. me back. This job yeah. should be harder than it is. And um, what I realized is that we are all handed this definition of success by somebody along the way, a little checklist of success. And it says things like, have the right job at the right company, make the right money, have the right title, live in the right house with exactly the right spouse, wear the right clothes and the right size, like this whole checklist of, you know, did you get the promotion? Did you get the corner office? Do you have the nice parking spot? Like all the things that are on that list. And you might've been handed that, that definition of success, that checklist by a parent. You might've been handed that checklist by a teacher. You might've been handed that checklist by a career counselor, by a boss, by somebody. And and we are told when we're 15, 16, 17 years old to pick a path, to pick a major, to pick a college, to pick a trade, mm -hmm. to pick, you know, a direction. But the thing is, when you're 15, 16, 17 years old, you're missing a really important part of your brain, the, the frontal lobe, right? And the frontal lobe is a part of your brain that actually dictates good, sound, logical decision-making. So we make these decisions that are going to impact the very rest of our lives when we literally do not have the capacity to make a good one. And then we you know, wake up at 35, at 45, at 55, at 65, and we're like, what am I doing? Why am I still yeah. doing this thing? And you know, I, I, I don't care, I'm not interested. And so what I realized as looking at the, the handful of people who I wasn't able to recruit away and looking at my own career, right? Leaving the Clinton administration partway through the, 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 the uh, first administration, nobody does that. Everyone waits till, you know, the second administration, um, uh, going and joining a huge search firm, but then leaving that when I had this moment of rage, when I thought I could do it better and faster with more integrity and more profit and better for my clients. And then leaving that company that I founded when I could have just like, hung out for the rest of my mm -hmm. life and just rested on my laurels and then jumping in and, you know, starting this whole new career as a speaker and an author, I kept constantly reinventing myself because I was successful, but I wasn't happy. Right. And so mm. the, the limitless is really based around this idea of continence, which you uh, mentioned earlier. Um, and continence is really that alignment, that flow when what you do matches who you are. So when you're on stage and you're feeling the love from the audience, you were up there and you were standing in the center of your excellence, 
right? In the very target of your expertise. And you are communicating with the people who you want to serve, who you want to love about how they can do even more of what they want to do even better. And so it's like, there's this virtuous cycle of excitement and energy and promise and potential and joy. And, 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 you know, and I've seen you on stage, you're incredible. The energy is so good. So, you know, it, 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 that is who you are in your core and you're just up there living into being that person. And so when people are thinking about this question of how do they chase this joy on their own on a cellular level, it's really thinking about like, well, where do you find joy? What do you love to do? And does what you love to do actually look like your inbox, your to-do list, your calendar, right? And I'm not saying like, do what you love and you'll never get paid a day. You'll never have to work a day in your life. I'm saying figure out what you love and then figure out how you can create an entire career based around that kind of work. Yeah. So you talk a lot about uh, getting people unstuck, which I love that phrase in your bio. Um, I think a lot of people are really stuck right now, like in this time of life. Like, and I don't know, it's obviously a million factors. I think, I think it is that we've all just at time of recording, you know, survived this, you know, P word. And we have all just, there's so much happening in the world. And like, there's a social media fire hose of bad news and negativity. And I mean, this is always a thing, but I just feel like right now, time of recording, it's like, I don't know, May, 2022. It's like everyone right now is really paralyzed by possibility, by potential, by what could be. So, so I feel like for you, like you're a reinvention Jedi, like you, you thrive on it, right? Like, like your personality type, it probably has a higher risk tolerance than the average bear. I mean, I know you to be very dynamic, you know, from, from your family, how you grew up, you know, being an athlete, we share a lot of the same kind of like crazy (laughs) entrepreneur tendencies, serial entrepreneur, creative tendencies for people that are listening that are like, I hear what you're saying. I want to seek out my joy. I want to find my moment on stage or my moment, you know, writing the book, or I want to find my joy and find someone to pay me for it. But they're just like, I just can't, like, I can't, they have that, that limiting belief that's so deeply ingrained in them that they listen to these podcasts and they roll their eyes. Like here's someone else saying that I can chase it down. What do you, I mean, you coach so many high performing individuals. Like what's one of the ways that you coach them through that kind of like, this is for everyone else. And that's cute for you, Lara and you, Aaron. But for me, like I have like insert limiting belief excuse here. Where do you start them from just even a mindset opening perspective. Yeah. Well, I want to back up a little bit in the list of accolades that you gave about how I'm an athlete and a marathon runner and all of this stuff. I didn't run my first mile like of my life until I was 39 years old. I was about to turn 40 and everything just hurt. And I'd never really exercised. I didn't really like to sweat. I was like very lazy human. I'm still a pretty lazy human. I just like force myself to sign up for things with other people. So I have to show up, but if I didn't, I just wouldn't do it. So, um, I tell people I'm like the laziest fit person you'll ever ever meet in your life. Um, but I ran my first mile ever as I was turning, as I was about to turn 40 and, um, it took me six weeks to run that mile without literally leaning over and like hurling on the floor of the boys and girls club where we were running laps around the gym. And then at that moment, I was like, well, you know, if I string three of those together, I could do a 5k and, 
six weeks later, I did a 5k and I say did and not ran because there were like men with like double jogging strollers passing me on the uphills. It was pretty <laughs> ugly. And then at the end of that, I was all hopped up on adrenaline. And I was like, if I string two of those together, I could do a 10k. And so I kept doing that over and over and over until, you know, I live in Boston and I'm running on Comav. And I was like, you know, I could maybe think about possibly maybe I could do a marathon. Yeah. And and so I did, but I didn't run it. I didn't crush it. But you know what they give to the person who t- comes in like 24,562, they give the same medal as the person who comes in second. So it turns out it doesn't actually really matter. And my running coach, you'd say to me, whenever anybody asks you what the time was of your race, you tell them it was the time of my life. And so Ooh, I've sort that's of taken, good. right. So I've taken that as this, like this that. sort of mantra, because the truth is, it doesn't actually matter how fast you run or how far you run or what you do. You don't wake up one morning and you say, I've never run before in my life. I'm going to go run a marathon. Like that is not where confidence comes from. People aren't just yeah. born with risk tolerance. They're not just born as a serial entrepreneur. Like you have to learn that. And confidence comes from competence. And competence comes from one foot in front of the other over and over and over. You run for five minutes, then you run for 10 minutes. And then when you've run a mile, maybe you run a second mile, then maybe you run five, maybe you run more. But I, if I had woken up that first day and said, I'm going to run a a marathon, I never would have been able to do it because I wouldn't have had the confidence to have the dream and I wouldn't have believed in myself enough. But once I showed myself a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, it became easier and easier and easier. So, you know, I... I, I don't think anybody wakes up one morning and says, I can do it. I'm going to change my entire life. I think people wake up one morning at the end of a you know horrible a couple of years and they say, when life goes back to normal, is the normal I'm going back to really the life I want? Yeah. And for so many, the answer right now is a resounding hell no. Hell no. And so what do you do? You don't just like go out and like change everything about your life. You change a little bit here. And a little bit here and a little bit here. And as you start making those changes into habits and those habits into, you know, your internal, you know, persona, then the next thing doesn't seem as scary. And the next thing doesn't seem as scary. And so the goals, you know, I think that I think that the that goal setting gets easier the more you do it, because mm-hmm. you you keep proving to yourself with competence that you can do bigger things, that you have the confidence to go after them. I love that so much. I love the idea that you're talking through goal setting in a very specific way. It's like, let's set a goal that has a finish line, that has the stopwatch stops here. Because I think for a long time, at least in my 20s and probably some of my early 30s, I was just running the endless race. I didn't have endpoints. I didn't know what success was supposed to look like or sound like or feel like. Yeah. How big do you want the company to be? As big as it can be. How much do you want to make? As much as I can make. Like those aren't, those aren't goals. Those are dreams, but they're not goals. And so like, if somebody's like, I think I, maybe I want to go start my own business. What's the first thing they should do? Well, they shouldn't walk out of their company, you know, with a blaze of glory with, you know, their manifesto in hand and their, their fishbowl Mm -hmm. in the other. I did that. I will recommend not doing that. Right. Bad idea. Um, (laughs) You recognize that story. So, you know, you've, you've been there. If I were right now at my company, I was like, you know what? There's a better way. I wonder what it might like be like to start my own company. I would start having conversations with people. I would have informational interviews with people who run their own companies, maybe who are in the same vertical as me, maybe who mm-hmm. um, started off from the same place as me and might be facing the same challenge. I would try to learn 
the lessons mm-hmm. that are already out there. And then as I learn those lessons, that would either make me more excited and hungrier and, and, mm-hmm. and more energetic towards it, or it would feel like organ rejection failure. And I would want to run from it. And that would teach me a lot about who I am. Yeah. No, it's so good, Lara. And and you've walked this. I mean, you're not just lip service. This is how you've built your career. And, yeah. and it's funny because there's so much glorification of the Jerry Maguire, who's coming with me moment. And it's all over the internet. And so I feel like there's always this binary moment that we think of where it's like, either I'm going to have my corporate job, or I'm just going to roll the dice and believe in myself. And leap out of the plane and build the parachute on the way down. And you and I both know, to your point earlier, I mean, this is a terrible idea. I mean, my first two ventures, I tried going all in without even testing and learning at a small, sexy, baby, little scale. Finally, third time around, as you know my story, you know, third time around, I had the one client and my kitchen table on the side of my nine to five job. I had that client for 10 freaking months and I worked after work, before work, weekends. And then I said, if I get three months salary saved up from this one client, then I'm going to make the move. But I think for so many people, it's always the sexy, dramatic, all or nothing, right? So I love that advice. And there's also this like, entrepreneurs are awesome. And the rest of you suckers are just sitting in a cubicle, you cubicle jockeys, you're like pushing paper around. It turns out that you could be just as entrepreneurial inside of a company. You can be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. There are so many incredible ways to be engaged and excited about the work you do and shape your career so that it reflects who you are as a person. It doesn't have to be entrepreneurship. It doesn't have to be jumping off the bridge all by yourself and hoping other people come with you. There are so many ways to find work that is meaningful to you mm-hmm. that it's, you know, it's, it's, but, but social media has this like all or nothing, this binary, you know, like you got to be your own boss. You got to, I mean, I think about somebody like Tiffany Bova, who's the chief uh, sales evangelist, chief, chief growth evangelist at Salesforce. And she, uh, I think she gave something like 150 speeches in 2019. I mean, she's as busy as could be. She could put out her own shingle any moment, any day and be incredibly successful. And she's like, yeah, I don't really want to do it. That's not my risk tolerance. I'm going to stay here. I'm going to stay inside this big company and I get to do all sorts of things that are super Mm -hmm. cool. And I get to shape my job. And, you know, nobody would look at her and say, oh, well, you're not an entrepreneur. You're clearly a, you know, you're clearly a loser. Like, so I think, you know, there's this question of, of, of glorification also Mm -hmm. of like the, the only way to, 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 to carve your own path and to like be on your own is to be on your own when there's so many other ways to do it. And less stressful, gray hair inducing, nightmare inducing ways to do it because there's so, there's so much bugs and moss and mushroom disgustingness under the rock that for some reason we all still to this day, do not tell, even everyone still tries to put the perfectly polished bow on the story. Like I was broke in my garage. I worked really hard. This lucky break happened and now I'm a billionaire with Elon Musk. And it's like, that is not the real story. I can tell you firsthand, that's not how it goes. But so let's talk a little bit about um, one topic that I, I feel like is something that I am always obviously, uh, I've, I've not pushed you, but probably annoyed you is more the word to tell the story. I know you pushed me. You definitely pushed me. (laughs) You definitely pushed me. You did not annoy me. You definitely pushed me. I would not have done it. 
Well, it's so inspiring to me, and that's why. Um, and so it's my hope if, you, if you've shared it with me in a private conversation with your sister at brunch, and I was moved to tears, I know it's a story that can help you know, other guys and gals. So, so let's talk a little bit about what it looks like when you've had a successful career, um, you've checked off the boxes, you've accomplished the accolades, you're feeling pretty good, life's awesome, things are going your way, and then you're dealt a hand that is not on your terms. You are (laughs) dealt a major blow that is like well without the bounds of like, we're all about control the controllables and there are certain things in life you certainly cannot control many things, particularly health. So you had a really gnarly health journey. I think it was like, was it two years ago? Uh, it was actually uh, not even, it was, uh, it was 14 months ago was, was my diagnosis. So I, um, I had made it through the pandemic. I've got two teenage kids. One of them is like, you know, got his college applications in. He's getting his acceptances. Life is good. I've got a healthy, you know, relationship with my husband. I I spent the year previous reinventing my entire business from like planes to events to stages to you know, walking downstairs to my, you know, laptop and doing the virtual keynotes and all of that. And I had just started Heart 75. So I was like a couple of weeks into it. I'm doing the two workouts a day. I'm drinking a gallon of water. I'm watching my macros. I've got like the six pack, like everything's awesome. And in Heart 75, you take a photo of yourself every single day, right? That's part of the the, the routine. This oh is like a ridiculously crazy, you know, stupid <laughs> workout thing to do, which I would not recommend. But I started noticing as I was taking the pictures every day that like on my six pack that I was, you know, so busy admiring, I'm like, look at me, 50 years old, sexy, woo. Yeah. What's that little spot? And what's that little spot? And what's that little spot? And then within a week of noticing the first spot, my body was literally littered from head to toe with these like scaly, orangey, silvery welts that were um, as itchy and as painful as you can imagine. And I, Mm -hmm. and I know because I was weighing myself every single day also during the heart 75 that I, within a 10 to two week period of time, I put on 18 pounds. So I just like, boom, inflammation, head to toe rash. I stopped sleeping and it took, um, two months, uh, 32 blood tests, uh, four biopsies and a chest X-ray before I got a diagnosis that I had a very rare autoimmune disease that literally only 800 people in the entirety of the United States have been diagnosed with. Mm. So that's fun. And um, when I finally got the diagnosis and went into the specialist office, I stripped down naked and he like looked at my body and literally he was the first doctor in like a dozen who looked at me and didn't go, wow. Which, you know, by the way, when you're 50 years old is not the kind of wow you want from a doctor looks at your naked body. And he was like, wow. He's like, yep. He goes, that's pityriasis rupa polaris. Mm -hmm. I've seen that. And I was like, great. You know what this is? What do I do? And he says, well, there's no specific test. There's no specific treatment. There's no specific cure. He's like, but there is this off-label medication that we could give you. It comes with uh, about a 50% chance of stroke and about a 20% chance of death. Would you like that? (laughs) At that moment, I was like, where do I sign? Because I was so, I was like, I hadn't slept in more than an hour uh, each night for like the previous two months. I... Mm. Um, would be lying if I didn't say that I had had suicidal tendencies. I am not a depressed Mm. suicidal person, but I was literally laying in bed 
making mental lists of, Mm. um, the, the videos that I wanted to make for my children. Like when they walked down the aisle, when they had their first kids themselves, when they graduated from college, like all of those milestone moments that I, I knew I wouldn't be there for, um, because I couldn't live like this. I couldn't live with this disease. Um, so it's, it's, um, Mm. it's not a life threatening disease, but it's a quality of life threatening disease. And the suicide rate for people who have it is fairly high because Mm. you just like, I, like I couldn't use my fingertips. I could, couldn't put my shoes on. I couldn't, I couldn't type. I couldn't open jars. Like I just, all of my skin was scaling and peeling. It was just, anyway, it was disgusting. And it, 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 I had this, like, I had this one moment of levity where I went into the doctor's office and I was like, come on, man. 800 people in the entirety of the United States. I mean, I'm special, but I'm not that special. <laughs> and he looked at his Aww. chart, like with no affect whatsoever. And he's like, well, according to the 32 blood tests, the four biopsies and that chest extra you have, it would appear you are that special. And so I sat down mm. in the chair and he put the like chemo fusion, the chemotherapy infusion IV into my arm. And I, um, and I signed up for a Boston marathon because <laughs> in my head, I had this realization where I said, okay, I have never felt so limited in my entire life. I have never not seen an option ahead of me, right? Like I've always felt like there were doors and if there weren't doors, there were windows. Like there were always options. You could always, if if you just looked around enough corners, you could find the next great adventure. There was always a way out. There was always a way through. And this was mm-hmm. the first moment in my life where I didn't. So here I am like marathon runner, master's rower, you know, successful career, great family, the author of a book called Limitless. And I was limited. And so I decided in that moment that tied up for the Boston Marathon. Cause I was like, in six months time, I'm either going to be running 26.2 miles or I'm going to be six feet underground. And there's really no gray area between the two. It's just going to be mm-hmm. one or the other. Did you think about that marathon? Like, tell tell us more about the significance of committing to a competition that in, in good days, in, in healthy days, is overwhelming, let alone when you have the odds stacked against you. So for you, was that a moment where you're like, I need something outrageously extraordinary to focus on, and that's what's going to keep powering me through. Like, tell us more about yes. that decision. No, that's exactly what it is. I mean, in that moment, I, I, I mean, I, I, I was wearing, uh, it was March in Boston and I was wearing flip-flops because I could not put my feet into my shoes. Mm. Like that's how, I mean, you know, I weigh, I weigh 130 pounds. So like 18 pounds is a significant percentage of weight gain. Right. So like my entire yeah. body, I was like, you know, like an elephant and, um, and, and, and I, I was so, you know, when you're not sleeping and your body's inflamed, your brain is also inflamed. Mm-hmm. I so readily signed those papers that were like, you might die. And I was like, great. That beats this alternative. Like no problem. Wow. Sign me up. Insane. It's insane. insane. And, and, and I said to my husband a couple of weeks ago, it's like, you crazy. Know, they- I cannot picture you being like that. Sorry. I have to interrupt you. That, that is, <laughs> that's actually insane. Yeah. I'm so sorry you had to go through that. I actually said to my husband, I was like, you know, I'm like, they shouldn't let people in my position sign that kind of paperwork. Well, right, right. (laughs) It's just like, it was literally, it was a 17 page release. And I was like, give me Mm. the pen, man. Like, where do I sign up? Like, I can't wait. Like, can you put the, like, I have to wait a week for the treatment. Mm. Can you put the IV in my arm now? Right. And, um, so they did. And I, and I, you know, PS long story, you know, 
to an end. I'm in remission now. I've made it through. I had my last infusion four months ago or, or seven months ago. So the drugs are out of my body and I'm healthy. So I'm good. So anyone who's listening, I'm, I'm like, you don't have to worry about me. I'm good. But in that moment of signing up, I was so tired and, and, and I was, I was just depleted. Like I had no emotional anything left in me. I had no physical anything left in me. I had no mental anything left in me. There were no reserves whatsoever. And I, I, I was like a three-year-old, right? And three-year-olds can't focus on anything but themselves. And so I was so yeah. focused on myself and what I was going through that I just needed something outside of me that was so yeah. big that I couldn't not think about it. And I also figured I had nothing to lose. Like, what's the worst thing that happens? I don't make it down 26.2 miles because I'm dead, right? Like, it's not, who am I going to be disappointing? <laughs> I'm dead. Right. Like, it's like, there it is. Um, but I, I, I knew that if I could make it through this first treatment and things started to get better, then I knew that having something to look forward to, something that was bigger than me, something that I did once 10 years earlier, and I didn't know if I could do it again, like mm -hmm. knowing that, that I, I, that was part of my identity. So when I ran that first mile, when I was 39, that was really the beginning of me. Like I was miserable at, in my job. I was just sick of, you know, the executive search world. It, it took running that mile and finding this inner athlete, the strong person who then started rowing and lifting weights and like finding like, oh, I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm a strong person that's just been inside of a lazy body all this time. Like mm -hmm. how cool that I have muscle. Like that's so neat to be in your forties, especially as a woman and like finding this new layer inside of you, right? That's so cool. And so that really helped me in my work, running my company to start thinking about like, what really matters to me and why am I doing this work and who do I want to be in the world and having confidence mm -hmm. to show up differently in boardrooms. And so it was really the beginning of the journey of like the modern version of who I am today. And so to look, to sit in that room with the chemo, you know, in an IV in my arm and think about the person who I was, mm -hmm. not like, I want to hold on to my 40 year old self. Like it wasn't a pursuit right. of being younger, but it was like, I want to, like, I remember that there is this person inside of me, this powerful mm -hmm. person inside of me. And I lost her inside of the rash and the inflammation and the pandemic and all the rest of the stuff. Yeah. And so just having this option that she might still be out there, even if it took me a 12 hours to finish the marathon, just knowing that I wasn't ready to give up just yet mm -hmm. was the thing that I needed in that moment. Mm. I think we've all had a moment, maybe not with chemotherapy and IV in our arm, you know, maybe not that extreme, but we've all had a nostalgic moment, not of longing for being that exact girl again. It's not like you're like, I want to be 39-year-old Lara. Right. Um, but it, it is interesting when you think about how we process who we are in light of the trauma that we've experienced. Yes. So it's like, it's like I am this girl who, like, you, you know my story with, like, losing my fur baby, right? Where I'm like, yes. I am this, I am a grieving mom and 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 i had this label and this label of like i am a sick woman or i am a like we have this like label and it puts this lid on this version of us that if we were her 10 years ago we can be her, her today we can be her tomorrow we can be her again and i love that you that you said i did this 10 years ago she's still in there i just have to have the resilience, the grit, whatever you want to call it, the fucking balls, whatever you want to call it, to to tell her I still believe she's in there 
and I'm going to fight like hell to bring her back out. Absolutely. And there was a moment, um, uh, I did a lot of, so after I was in remission, I, I thought I was fine. I'm like, it's great. I'm fine. I'm like three months out of having, you know, the, the drugs. I haven't gone back for the next infusion in three more months. The drugs will be out of my body. What happens then? I don't know. Does it come back? Who knows? You can't take the same drugs again because your body develops an allergy to them. So like if the drug comes back, oh, is there another off-label drug I can take? I don't know. Maybe mm. not. Will I die? Who knows? Right. We're all in, it's like, it's, we're like in the bonus right now. Like, I'm just like, I'm on borrowed time for as long as it's going to last. And that might be 30 years and it may be three, like who knows. And so the way that I um, am, am approaching it is like my body from the neck down is like, cool, we're good. Hey brain, you need to figure out what the hell just happened to us. Right. And so I suddenly started dealing with all this trauma. And again, Mm -hmm. I'm not. I am not somebody who has anxiety and depression. I, I have been anxious. I have been depressed at the time, but I'm not, I'm not like clinically big A, big D anxious, you know, have anxiety or depression. And that's, mm-hmm. that's real. And that's hard to deal with. But as somebody who has not had that and has never had to medicate or scaffold or have therapy around it, all those things, all of a sudden I was like, wait a minute, why can't I deal? Like, why is this so hard? And I went to go see someone and, you know, I, a lot of, talk therapy and a little bit of ketamine, which has been amazing, um, helped me. And there was one night I went to sleep and I had this very vivid dream where the old me like looked at me and was like, hi, just, just wanted to let you know, like, I know, I know you're not back to us yet, but just so you know, we're, we're here, we're waiting. It's cool. We'll be here when you're ready. And, and I think that that it happens to a lot of people when we go through something and we then label ourselves as something and that becomes mm-hmm. this sort of nominative determinism right the self you know fulfilling prophecy i actually read a study uh, a few years ago and i was just talking to my husband about it a couple of nights ago where people who say i am a smoker have a harder time quitting than people who say i smoke because mm, I am a smoker is that is my identity and i cannot get away from it but i smoke means I smoked a cigarette. That wasn't good. I will try not to do that again. If I do it again, then I just smoked another cigarette. I cannot do that again. Right. So it's like when we say I am a grieving mom, that means that is who I am. I'm going to wear that cloak forever. And that cloak is very heavy and that cloak will Mm -hmm. weigh us down as opposed to saying I am experiencing grief. That is a Mm. moment in time, right? That is a temporary thing. And you may always have bits of that with you. You'll always have bits Mm -hmm. of that with you, but it doesn't become your identity. It doesn't shape all of your decisions. And I think for a lot of people who are stuck in work, they say, I am an accountant. I am a lawyer. I am an entrepreneur. I am a whatever, insert your job here. And they don't think that they could do anything else. But if you said, I have had legal training, well, what other kinds of things can you do with legal training? I'm good with numbers. What other kinds of things can you do with that, right? There's so many different ways that we can break out of these definitions that other people have given to us. And for me, signing up for the marathon was my way of saying, I am not my disease. Mm-hmm. I refuse mm-hmm. to be my disease. And if I, if the disease takes me down, then good for it, right? It was stronger than me. But right now, I'm not, I'm not ready to give in just yet. Right now you're going to have the time of your life. I'm going to have the time of my life. Laura, it's so powerful. And it's interesting because I think, especially as, as 
entrepreneurs and and obviously this goes for everybody um but especially for entrepreneurs we have such a hard time separating who we are from what we do mm-hmm. and i love the distinction of even the language that you use there because for positive or negative right like where is where one thing that drives me crazy is when you hear people say like well i'm an aspiring author or like i'm an aspiring chef or i'm an aspiring singer it's like why can't you just be like if you sing or you cook or you write you're a writer. Like it can go yes. both ways, right? And so it's interesting how the way that we label ourselves and the identity that we define, which is a very much on your terms moment versus like a bad health diagnosis or a traumatic accident or even that you can't carry a tune. You weren't blessed with good pitch, you know? Whatever. Those hands were dealt. We can't we can't control, but I love this idea of just deciding and defining who you do or don't want to be and that the rest follows from that conscious choice and not to get too, you know, law of attraction, secrety about it. But I mean, there, there's all kinds of studies. You write things down, you see yourself doing them, you feel the emotion of accomplishing it or being it or doing it or beating it. And these are the, the manifestation moments that, you know, create major magic, not to sound woo woo hippie, but this no, is, but you know why that works real. I actually researched this because there's there's a chapter in my next book, Wonder Hell, that's going to be about this idea, the secret behind the secret. It turns out we can make our own luck. So the reason that manifestation works is that your brain takes in something like, I don't know, there's an actual number, but I don't remember. So let's say a bajillion. Your brain takes up a bajillion bits of data every single second, every single second it is being like an onslaught of data comes at you, but your brain is only capable of processing like six of those bits of data. So if you say out loud, like if you're just thinking whatever, I think I wanna go to Japan, fine. That's just like a passing thought. But if you say, I want to go to Japan, Aaron, we should go to Japan in the spring. Let's put it on the vision board. I'm going to see that every single day as I walk through my office, Japan, there's a beautiful picture of Kyoto with, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the pink uh, uh, cherry blossoms and it's beautiful. All of a sudden you start noticing buses go by with deals to Japan, right? Mm-hmm. You start getting ads on, and it's not because your phone's listening to you, although it may be because your phone's listening to you, but it's because you have told your brain intentionally, you have signaled to your brain, hey, when you get a bit of data about Japan, show it to me. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, you'll start noticing that there's movies out about Japan, or there's, you know, a great television show where you'll um, be, you'll, you'll see a, 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 you know, a great uh, new restaurant that's Japanese, and it, because you're telling your brain to see it. So the secret behind the secret, the reason that we manifest, I manifested the perfect man into my life, I manifested mm-hmm. this business being, I manifested a great client, it's because we have been intentional about talking about what we want and defining it out loud so that our brain looks for those opportunities. So we can signal that we want abundance by just talking about the type of abundance that we want. It's so, See, so it's not true. super woo, right? We can take your it's West Coast so woo, true. my East Coast science and there we have it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. We're always a good team. Um, let's talk a little bit about ego because everything we're talking about in terms of defining who we are, in terms of defining success for us, all of these are very rational energetic management based decisions that we know how to observe how our brain is going to respond we can define our behaviors all of these things sound very rational very doable in this particular conversation let's talk about when the ego gets involved yeah and and how so because for some of us there's like this line like some of us need more ego like the time when you when you were like 
I love how Gary Vee just like rants on stage and I wish I could just like rant and I'm I like, was like, I'm like, I can't do that. Aaron. I can't I'm like, like Gary Vee. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? I'm like, you worked in the White House. Like you, yeah. Okay. This guy, I love Gary Vee, but you know, he did wine videos on YouTube. Phenomenal. But like you, I worked in the White House. Your pedigree is every much him. And in that moment, I was like, oh my God, the author of Limitless, even she feels limited. And it made me feel better about all of my inner Regina George moments myself, but, <laughs> but but it was kind of this moment where you were like, you're like, gosh, it was almost like you needed almost more ego in that moment, right? And then you and I on the flip side have both been probably behind our backs accused of being like, we are a little too like, we got this. I mean, I've been called delusionally confident before, like by people that appreciate the backing and compliment. So like, it's interesting how there's this spectrum of the ego can either, you know, ego is the enemy is a great book. I think is that Ryan Holiday, I think yes. that book, but you know, it, it can be this beautiful uh, embracing that as women, I think we could use a little bit more of, in my opinion, for the most part. Uh, but other times it can really get in our way of, of, of how we see ourselves and our pride. And so how does an ego play into all of this? And, and especially with the wonder hell component, like where, how do you see ego and its role in your success? Yeah, it's funny that 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 you uh, say that. I was I did a uh, another podcast earlier today, and the host was like, "So you have um, you have a lot of confidence." <laughs> it's like, and did you feel like it was a compliment? <laughs> no, it was definitely not a compliment. Interesting, it was, interesting. It, it felt very much like, uh, yeah, I don't talk to a lot of women who are assertive mm. and strong and feel comfortable with what they think about things. And I was like, well, that's just like a damning on women mm -hmm. in the world. Like we should feel mm -hmm. much better. And the men shouldn't, I mean, nobody, nobody says that to men. They oh, don't. you seem so confident. Right. And no. nobody ever talks about ambition with men as if it's a bad word. Right. They're like, have you ever heard? Oh, he's so ambitious. No, you heard no, not. he's such an ambitious young man, but with women, Oh, she's so ambitious. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like this, like it's, and, and studies have shown that, um, women who are in power, get higher approval ratings than women who want to seek power. So not going to get political here, but just to use Hillary Clinton as an example, she was ranked as one of the most looked up to women in the world when she was secretary of state. And when she decided to run for president, that approval rating tanked, right? Like people do not like women who seek power. They like women who are in power. They're okay with, but women who want power, who are ambitious, that's hard for a lot of people to take. And so, um, so let's talk about ego. So I think that that moment that we have the like, I did it, this thing, it worked. Oh my God, the work I did opened more doors than I ever thought possible. But that work also teased the possibility of even more doors that I never thought available to me. And suddenly you're like, wait a minute, what if I want more, right? And that's the moment where a lot of women say, I can't want more. I shouldn't want more. I shouldn't be ambitious. No, I'm going to like- I should be grateful. I should left. be grateful, right? Or I'm not ready or it's not perfect or all of those things. And, you know, look, this is what I say to women, especially. And, you know, men, you're welcome to listen to this too. But for women, especially, I ask them this question. Would having more money- more time, more resources, more leverage, more power, more access, allow you to show up more for the people that you love and the causes that you hold dear? And the answer is always, yes, of course it would. And so I tell them, it's not your ambition then, it's your responsibility. 
right? Women feel great about responsibility. I want to be responsible to the people I love and the causes I hold dear. Women are fine to go after everything they want because it allows them to do more for the things that they think are important in the world. It's not Mm -hmm. just ambition. It's our responsibility. And that's cool. But here's the other thing. And, you know, the first piece relates to Limitless and the second piece relates to Wonder Hell. In those 20 years of doing executive search, the internal candidates who didn't get the job always left. So you have an internal candidate who wants the bigger job, they're applying, you're doing an outside search, the internal candidate applies. And even if they're treated great in the search, they always leave. Hmm. So why do they leave? They leave because the very process of interviewing for that bigger job means that they literally have to, even for just a minute, wear the clothes of that role, speak in the voice of that role, answer questions in that role. And once they see part of themselves in that bigger role, Mm -hmm. they can't unsee themselves this way. And just like us, once we get bitten by the bug of ambition and ego and wonder hell and all of that, once we have that moment when we're like, my idea can be bigger, I can be bigger, I was went for more, we can't unsee this new us. And so that's the moment where we have to decide to come to terms with our own ambition and that it's okay to have ego. It's okay to be confident. It's okay to want more. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's it's so true. And sadly, the gender conversation plays such a role with this yes. advice because and, and we're not going to solve that in this podcast episode, but it is it is complicated and messy and layered. Um, I don't know what the answer is for for me personally. I, I know uh, <laughs> When I raised seven figures of capital to launch a tampon delivery service from a bunch of Newport Beach investor alpha bros, I can tell you right now, I didn't go in there like a big swinging dick that knew everything and was confident and ambitious. I will tell you right now, I went in there tapping into some serious feminine energy. And obviously I'm talking about tampons, so it's pretty feminine as it gets. But I mean, my delivery was, I I, I hate to say this, I mean, I softened up my style like my vibe was very um i think i i just it's it's weird to think like i know for a fact if i had gone in with those 13 men and just been like if i was pitching you on something if i had gone in the same way i don't know if i would have been able to raise seven figures of startup capital i don't know if they would have said yes i don't know i didn't do it i could be wrong but it's just weird to even think like that that like the the way you manage your ego the way you present your ego that you have to like dial it up and dial it down based on your audience and so part of me is like is that a gender thing or is that just like a good salesperson thing because I'm great sales people are, are chameleons thing. you know what i, I mean? think it's a good sales you know, you know your thing. audience right yeah. you know yeah, I don't think you were betraying all women on earth doing that, right? I'm like, I wouldn't, I don't I thought I don't about it like, a lot. I really no, have thought I mean, about I get it. it. Like, you know, when 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 I was when I was pitching clients in my executive search firm, there were clients I'd walk in, potential clients I'd walk in wearing a pretty little dress. And there were some where I'd wear a men's tailored three-piece suit, right? Like you have to walk in knowing your audience. I know that if I walked in to one of the presidents of one of the biggest hedge funds on wall street wearing a pretty little flower dress he would not take me seriously if i walked Mm -hmm. in with cloth from head to toe but a very tailored body conscious men's three-piece suit i would have his attention in the middle of trading hours right like you have to know and i think i think as women we have so many more cards in our deck to play than men do and it would be foolish for us Agreed. not to play all of those cards. And so am I going to walk into, you know, uh, um, 
I don't know, the local, uh, you know, gardening club wearing that tailored men's suit? No, because they're going to be like, who's the freak, right? Like, that's not, that's not the right audience. So I don't, I think it's good self-awareness. I think it's mm-hmm. good research on your clients. You know, I used to have, um, I had an executive coaching client once who was a female entrepreneur and her husband was like the CFO at the company. So she's a CEO, uh, a CEO he's a CFO, and they would go in and they do pitches together. And she would just constantly be annoyed. She's like, it's so frustrating. I do the pitch and then they turn to him to ask the questions. Mm. And one Mm. time I finally said to her, I'm like, well, are they giving you the money? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, then don't worry about it. Right. Like you can answer like once you've, once you've gotten the money and you're doing well and the business is scaling, you can correct them in future meetings. But right now, if what gets you the money is letting them feel like this is their paradigm is the right one, would you rather be right and alone, or would you rather, you know, like, would you yeah. rather like let things go? So I don't know, maybe you and I together are betraying our gender, but I don't think so. I think it's a matter of being smart and understanding Sally Krawcheck, who, um, uh, ran Smith Barney and ran, uh, uh, Bank of America. She's, she was the only woman who's been fired on the cover of wall street, uh, the wall street journal twice, right? Like pretty, like that's nobody wants that. Um, but she said to me, um, I was fired by being a woman for being a woman. She's like, I wasn't fired because I had female parts. I was fired because I thought like a woman. I was the only one in that boardroom who would think about long-term risk, who would think about nuance, who would think about the effect of our, our um, investments on the, you know, the, our customers. Everyone else was like, let's get in, let's get out. They were very male energy. And so she said, I had a choice to make. I could either be like them and not sleep well at night, or I could be me. And so she chose to be her. And now she's created Elevest, which is this incredible women's mm-hmm. investing platform that has more than $2 billion under management. So at the end of the day, I think, you know, this goes back to what we started off talking about is like, you have to figure out who you are yeah. and who you are when you're the very best version of yourself. And the very best yep. version of yourself has the super feminine, has the super masculine, women and men, both, we all have the full spectrum. And if yep. that very best version of yourself gets you seven figures and you're able to start a business, then all the more power to you. Well, it's interesting. I remember the one time you and I were working on a speech and you said that I was coming in full blast, like full Aaron, just like, I'm here, what's up, blah, right? And you said that we had a mutual friend who's a great public speaker and you said that he kind of like will start off a little bit more, not politically correct, but sort of just like a more a polished, mellow, mellow, mellow version, quieter. Kind of, you know, introduce them and then he would sort of dial up his personality as the keynote went on. Well, it was great advice and I took it and it has really helped my cadence and my pacing. And and I think that that's sort of kind of what I did in that room with those investors. I kind of started off like, you see a pink dress and a gal holding tampons. Let's yes. just start there. And then, and as the meeting went on and then as the relationship went on, they, they were like, oh, she played D1 lacrosse. Oh, okay, she plays golf. Okay, right. she surfs. Okay, she wears sneakers. And so I could kind of like- And okay, look at these financials over she's time. showing us. Right. Yeah, yeah. And so, and then they could sort of like see the story I was telling with the numbers and see, you know, the, the P&L, but they had to like, process the package I came in first in order to see the story that I was sharing. And the thing is, if you had walked in the full Aaron, here are my numbers and I'm a serious person and I'm all power. They in that room would have said, she's a threat. We need to take Mm -hmm. her down. Let's show her where she's wrong. As opposed to just letting them spend the first three minutes patting themselves on the back for taking this meeting with the pink dress lady until suddenly they go, oh, oh, shit. 
she's got something here. Mm-hmm. Let me pay attention. Mm-hmm. Right. There's always that moment. And I remember it so clearly where suddenly the, 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 you know, the, the, they were mostly dudes, right. Stale male pale, right. They all look the same and they're, you know, little vests. And suddenly they would just lean forward in the chair. Like, and you were like, Oh, they just realized I have a brain in my head. Awesome. Yeah. Right. And that's when you can then go in, but you know, I think it's good self-awareness. Like when my kids were five and seven years old, I didn't walk in and be like, okay, let's start talking about calculus. I was right. like, let's do sure. like, let's do arithmetic. Like you gotta, like, you gotta bring people along as you're going. It's the same thing. I couldn't yeah. have jumped up and said, I'm going to run a marathon. I had to like run for five minutes and then run for 10 minutes. And I think you have to kind of like let people in a little bit in that same way. I love it. Well said. Okay, LGO, I know you very well. And now our Success Magazine family knows you a lot better as well. But tell us before we kind of wrap up, tell us one thing that people get wrong about you. Oh, I, well, I think people think that I am uh, that I am endlessly intrinsically motivated and that I've always got it together and that I always know what I'm doing. When the truth is, like I said, I'm the fittest, lazy person you'll meet and I'm making it all up as I go along. And the truth is I have spent 25 years interviewing thousands of people and I'm not alone. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It turns out we're all making it all up as go along, but people look at me and they see the outside package and they think that that's reality when in fact Mm -hmm. it is a hot mess in here. Well, isn't it interesting? So we all have these incredible imposter syndromes that follow us around, whatever you want to call it. Um, and isn't it interesting? I remember we were in Clubhouse. We were in one of the rooms. I think you and I were in there with like Fotini. You was another guest uh, on the podcast here. Fotini, I cannot bump yes. however you say her name. Um, and somebody said something like, what's interesting about this imposter syndrome is that the only people who don't experience it are the ones who are actually the imposters. Yes, Dunning-Kruger. <laughs> is that who it was? Okay. Well, no, the Dunning-Kruger effect is like- the, Is that what it's the, called? The, okay. Yeah, the only, the only people who don't have imposter syndrome are the ones who really should. Yeah, and isn't that interesting? So I remember I, I was at a keynote, you know, probably, I don't know, a month or two ago, and I remember being backstage and there was like these amazing, huge names on the bill. And I had that friggin' moment where I'm like, holy shit, I have zero business being here. Like this is- I'm out of my league. I'm, I'm batting out of my league. This is above my pay grade. And I started to get obviously like really nervous and sweaty. And then what was interesting, it was the classic move of like, okay, I'm feeling out of my depth. So now let's stop focusing on me and how they're going to per- perceive you and me, me, me and all this crap. Let's flip it around and just say like, do you know something this audience does not? The answer yes. is yeah, I do. Can you deliver it in a way that can serve them and make them operate better online, offline all the time? I think so. Okay, let's just stick with that. Say a prayer, show up, do your best and call it. Like that is it. Like no more spiraling into this place of you don't belong here. That is such a great framework. I, you know, I had, I had uh, team members who worked for me all the time who would walk into board meetings and they would just blather. They would just be like, I'm going to just vomit comment all over the, these, these, the, these board members about every single detail there is to know about every single possible uh, candidate that I'm going to present. And I would have to say to them afterwards, I'm like, you talk too much. Like you said too many things. And she's like, well, I just, I, I said, it was, it made it obvious that you were nervous. And she said, well, I thought that if I just said everything, then they would know that I knew everything and they wouldn't ask me any questions. And it worked. They didn't ask me any questions. I said, they didn't ask you any questions because they zoned out because you told them too many things. I said, and I had to say, I said, you walk in with a mantle of expertise until you show them that you don't have it, right? Like you are on that, you are on that stage 
as an expert until you show them that you don't have it. So I love this. Like, do I have something that they need to know? Do I know something they need to know? Yes. Can I do it in a way that's going to be interesting, entertaining? Yes. Like you had the, that you gave yourself back the mantle of expertise that that event organizer had handed you. And I love the way that you frame that because I was going to say, I, you know, I've, I've had those moments before and often I'll text you and be like, oh my God, I'm going to die. This is terrible. And you're like, you got this, you're a badass. And, but I love that framing is so good. I, 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 I love it. Yeah. Well, I adore you. I adore this conversation. I could talk to you as usual for hours and hours. Um, last question for you. Sort of yes. a fun question. Uh, who would you say, I know you have so many incredible connections and relationships. Um, who would you say has had the biggest impact on you? Not necessarily like a mentor, but someone that you just look at and you're like, I know for a fact, I don't know if I could be where I am right now without that person's like guidance or advice or, or them modeling a version of me that I'm like, that would be cool. I'd like to be like that. Who, who is that for you? Yeah. You know who I'm going to say it's Carrie Lorenz, of course, right? So Carrie good. Lorenz, first female fighter pilot, the F-14 fighter pilot in the U.S. Navy who refuses to ever let anybody in her circle settle for mediocrity. And there was a moment when I was about to put out Limitless and it was good, but it wasn't great. And she called me on it and she made sure I made it great. And she has been a, a role model and a friend and a mentor and uh, she's part of my family. And absolutely, Carrie Lorenz would be the one. She rocks. She definitely is the person that will pick up the phone, pick up the text, make the time. I don't know how she does it all with all the, with the kids and the traveling. And she's unbelievable. Totally agree. Great call. Um, and I feel the same way about you. So thank you so much for being on our podcast today, Laura. Guys, follow at HeyLGO, H-E-Y-L-G-O, right? Is that your handle? That's right. On all the socials, pick up Limitless, get ready for Wonder Hell, the TEDx talk coming out in June 2022. It will be out in June. So if you're listening to this in June or after, please go Google my name and Wonder Hell and please watch the video. Uh, sign up at wonderhell.com if you want to know more about the book coming out in April 2023. Cannot wait to read it. LGO, you rock. Thanks again. Thank you. Thank you so much for investing your heart, your mind, of course, your time with me here today. And it is my deepest hope that you have gleaned at least a few new nuggets on how to better live a life that you love on your terms. You can subscribe to see all of my weekly episodes. And if you have time, you can send a screenshot of your review of the podcast to onyourterms at erinking.com and you'll be sent a free access pass to my Digital Persuasion Masterclass, where you'll learn how to attract attention increase your influence, and sell smarter from behind the screen. I hope that you'll join me next week for another episode of On Your Terms. And until then, let's connect on Instagram at Mrs.Aaron.King. Till next time, friends.